Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Thank you for joining us. It is a beautiful day outside. So uh, we skipped spring and we went from winter to summer. So <laughs> good reason to be happy. Things are warming up. And uh, I'm glad you've taken the time to join us here for Shabbat morning. Uh, there's two things actually I wanted to talk about this morning. Uh, one of them occurred this past week and one of them occurred this morning. The thing that occurred this past week was Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day, as many of you know, that it celebrates and marks the, the reunification of Jerusalem, both the west side and the east side. In 1967, after the Six-Day War, was brought together as a complete political entity. Now, political entity is an important distinction because anybody who has had the good fortune of spending time in Yerushalayim and Jerusalem know <clears throat> that the diversity of the city the expansiveness of all the different kinds of neighborhoods speak to a kind of cultural diversity or perhaps a disunification that isn't quite like the political unity where you, it's all ruled under one particular regime. But the miracle of Jerusalem, for those of us who have had the good fortune to visit and spend time there, for us it's not just a political reality. Jerusalem, it should be noted, is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible more than 862 times. That is not including, by the way, the various mentionings throughout the, throughout the liturgy, the prayer services uh, of the year. This is just in the biblical text itself. And so I thought for a few moments in celebration of Jerusalem and its remarkable position in Jewish life that I'd share a few interesting customs that are particular only to the city of Jerusalem. So here it goes. Number one, interestingly, there's only one city in the world where Jewish communities, where they inter, they bury their deceased at night. And that is in Jerusalem. This custom, which is many, many thousands of years old, has to do with the unique spiritual status of Jerusalem and not leaving the remains of people who are deceased laying overnight for fear of defilement, ritual defilement, that the custom began of bringing people into burial even at night. Interestingly as well, that in Jerusalem, even today still found amongst the Orthodox weddings, that they will not celebrate a wedding with live music. And that is because of the aged custom of maintaining mourning practices in Jerusalem because of the destruction of the temple. And so on the day of the wedding, both bride and groom will dash some ashes on their forehead as a maskerat churban Yerushalayim, as a commemoration, a remembrance of Jerusalem's destruction more than 2,000 years ago, which is also seen even in our time when we break the glass. The dashing of ash on a person's forehead is also similar to a custom that we have on Tisha B'Av, just before the great fast of Tisha B'Av that marks, commemorates the destruction of the two temples, also 2,000 years ago. The other custom that's very interesting is that we know that there are examples of Ketubot, Jewish wedding contracts, from the Middle Ages even to modern times where it says on the ketubah, or sometimes just on the wedding invitation itself, where it says it announces the date and the time of the wedding, 
the names of both the prospective bride and groom. And then it has the location of where the wedding is going to be held. And that in some instances, there is a long-standing tradition that it says before they give the location of where the wedding is going to be held, the address, it says, but if the Messiah comes, we'll be celebrating the wedding in Jerusalem. Which is just a reminder, and it's an ever-present kind of message, that it tells us about how important, how central the story and idea of Jerusalem has been in the life of our people for thousands of years. That irrespective of whatever political situation had been taking place in that area, either it was the Turks or the Crusaders or the British, whatever it was, Jerusalem always was an ever-present reality, a value that the Jews held close to their hearts that next year in Jerusalem. The ancient rabbis take this on a slightly different level. They say that when God created Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, he created two of them. There was the Yerushalayim Shelmata. There was the earthly Jerusalem, the one that we see on the streets and on the, now the, the narrow passageways and, and the stores and all those things. But they also said that, that, that there is a Yerushalayim Shamala, that there's a heavenly Jerusalem. And that this is a spiritual idea that we can take wherever we are in the world. You don't physically have to be on the streets of Jerusalem to carry Jerusalem inside of you. As the famous Hasidic rabbi Nachman Abresov once famously said, wherever I go in this world, I'm heading to Jerusalem. And that's the idea of this heavenly or spiritual Jerusalem, which connects to the other thing I wanted to say to you this morning. This morning, we had the good fortune, the blessing of beginning the fourth book of the Torah, Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. If you had a chance to read through and look through the Torah portion this morning, I have no doubt that what you saw was a simple recitation of family names, tribal affiliations, a census that accounted for all of the uh, army-eligible, arms-bearing men of a certain age, according to the tribe. The final number that we read is 600,000 men only. And then it tells us of some of the places that the Israelites wandered as they went through the Midbar, through the wilderness. You might look at this and see it as a dry recitation of numbers and names and places. And the truth of the matter is, you wouldn't be wrong. But as is in the case of most deep things, the real message isn't obvious. You have to look a little bit behind it. So to help us pull the curtain back and look a little bit behind what we read and heard this morning, I want to invite to our conversation one of the most prolific and profound American Jewish theologians of the past century. His name was Mordechai Kaplan. Kaplan famously wrote on this morning's Torah portion of the story of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness that this Torah portion for this morning introduces us to. Kaplan says that it has a message for us about our own lives. He reiterates the question asked by the ancient rabbis. Why out of all the places in the world did God choose to give the Torah, the mission, the mission message of the Jewish people in the middle of this desert? 
Why wasn't it given in a beautiful lush valley or perhaps in some kind of oasis or maybe on some stirring beautiful mountain that would be the highest peak in the land itself? Of course, we know that Jewish tradition says that Mount Sinai was the humblest of mountains, a small kind of hill perhaps somewhere. Archaeologists to this very day still don't know where it is. The Mount Sinai that you see on Google, Google Maps is not the Mount Sinai that we read about in the Torah portion. It was chosen for some other reasons by Christian monasteries. So why was it chosen in this most nondescript barren wasteland? And Kaplan says the reason why it was chosen to be there, why it wasn't in a lush valley or some kind of other beautiful place where life can easily live, is because the Torah is telling us that life is meant to be a spiritual journey, not a materialistic one. And what does that mean? What that actually means is, is that a life that is devoted to the spiritual things and not to the materialistic things? Yes, it means that. But on a deeper level, we can understand what a spiritual journey is as opposed to a materialistic journey. A spiritual journey is a journey that sees that the victories that matter in life are not the material victories. It's the moral victories. A spiritual journey realizes that the accounting of my value is not seen in the things that I own or in the things that I acquire or the money that I have, but that a spiritual journey speaks about an accounting of the person that I am, of the things that I do, of the lives that I touch, and the goodness and love that I spread and share. A spiritual journey says that my life matters not by the things that I purchase or the things that I own or what people may think of me. A spiritual journey says that my value and my life has meaning because of the things that I love and I care about. It is the things that I am devoted to, not the things that I hold on to physically that make the difference between a spiritual journey and a materialistic journey. To help explain this a little bit more, I want to share with you a story of one of my personal heroes. It was the great social psychologist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. Frankl, in one of his books, he's written many, the most famous of which was Man's Search for Meaning. But in one book, actually, called The Doctor and the Soul, Frankl tells this story. He tells of arriving at Auschwitz and where he is told to, along with everyone else, to strip off all of their clothes. It is during this time after stripping off their clothes that they will get their tattooed numbers. Their heads will be shaved, and they will be deliced. And only then would they be given their prison clothes. These prisoner clothes, of course, weren't brand new clothes. They were clothes that had been worn by other inmates who had been murdered. Frankel when he had been transported to Auschwitz, had taken with him this transcript, manuscript that he had written of his life's work and theories, and he had put it into the pocket of the jacket that he was wearing. It was a thick book, and he had sewn it into a pouch. When he arrives at Auschwitz, he begs the camp guard to allow him to keep his jacket, pleading with him 
that his life's work is in it. The guard, of course, didn't care. He smashes Frankel with his baton, tells him to strip down like everyone else. And Frankel is heartbroken because he realizes that he may very well now may die. But even worse, his spiritual work, his great treatise on psychological theories that he believed would change the world, would be lost forever. He takes the coat off, strips down. He gets his tattoo. They shave his head. He's delighted. And crying and broken, he reaches the other side where there's a pile of clothes of old inmates. And he grabs some clothes that he thinks might fit him. He puts a shirt on and he puts his hand inside the pocket. And what does he find? There is a page of a torn sidor of a prayer book. And he looked at it, and it was the page that contains the Shema. Franklin had realized that even though his manuscript had been lost, that human life is a story of moral victories where one victory is handed to another person, realizing that they actually don't die, that the body can wither and even be destroyed, but things of meaning, of moral value, they are inextinguishable. But perhaps the French philosopher said it more succinctly. Chardin famously said that there are those who think that we are physical beings having a spiritual experience. But Chardin said they are wrong. We're actually spiritual beings who are having a physical experience. Shabbat shalom, everyone.